LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom. And I'm Caleb Bissinger. And this is The Next Big Idea. Today, life is a game. A game of status. Whether you like it or not. I'm joined in the virtual studio today by my producer, Caleb Bissinger. Well, I mean, I'm always here. I just don't always have my microphone turned on. That's right. But I asked you to leave it on today because the two of us cannot stop talking about the book that today's episode is all about. It's really impacted my thinking, Caleb, and I think it may have also impacted you. Yeah, no, absolutely. So on the show today, Rufus is going to be speaking with a brilliant British writer named Will Storr. And we've been following Will's work for a while now. I think, Rufus, you read his book, Selfie, which is all about why we're so hopelessly narcissistic. Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with this book he published in 2019 called The Science of Storytelling, which is, I don't think an exaggeration to say, the best book I've ever read about writing. Mm -hmm. And I have read a lot of them. And Will is something of a star over in the UK. He hits bestseller lists. The Times of London called him one of the best journalists of ideas. But... He's not quite as well-known in the U.S. I think that could change, Caleb, thanks to his new book, The Status Game, On Human Life and How to Play It, which I read with relish. His thesis is that our brains were, quote, designed by evolution to seek connection and rank, to be accepted into groups and win status within them. This is the game of human life. And you can't not play that game, right? That's the tricky part. It's involuntary. We are all constantly measuring our status and trying to increase it. Will says, the only feasible way to opt out is to seek an empty room and stay in it. And frankly, I'm not even sure that would work. You cannot escape the status game. You can't win it either because the more status you get, the more you want and the more you have to lose. And I think we should pause and say, you know, some listeners may be thinking, Hold on a second, Rufus. That that can't be true because I don't care about status. I'm not obsessed with fame or fortune. So maybe you can explain what exactly Will means by status, because I think it's not just about money or celebrity, is it? Absolutely right, Caleb. That's a really important distinction. The way Will defines it, status isn't exclusively about money or celebrity. It's about feeling valued. It's about being taken seriously. And we've come up with an infinite variety of games where we compete to achieve that sense of self-satisfaction. And here's how those games work. You get a group of people together, they agree on what symbols they're gonna use to mean status, and then they strive to capture as many of those status symbols as they can, more than any other player. So, you know, money is a status symbol, power is a status symbol, where you went to college is a status symbol. Uh, what kind of music you like, where you buy your groceries, the size of your carbon footprint, how often you meditate. These are all status symbols, and we can play games with all of them. They are everywhere, and it's easy to get discouraged when you start seeing it. You realize how many status games you're playing and how many of them are, frankly, kind of silly, kind of ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know you shouldn't care about them, and yet you do because you just can't help yourself. So- In the lead up to this interview, Rufus, we had a really interesting conversation, the two of us, about a particular status game that you found yourself playing kind of unwittingly uh, back in your 20s. And I wonder 
if you would be comfortable maybe to, to share a little bit about that, because I think it's 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 really compelling and, and relatable. And a little bit embarrassing, but I'll share it nonetheless. <laughs> um, so yes, when I was in my 20s, a few good friends of mine started to publish their first books. And I attended their book launch parties. I was happy for them. I was proud of them, but I was physically unable to read their books. I, I intended to. I kept saying, next week, I'm going to crack, crack the book. But I could not physically bring myself to do it, to read their books. And why, why do you think? Like, What was holding you back? Well, that's what's interesting. I don't know that I could have answered that question at the time, but mm. I can answer it now. I, I think I couldn't read their books because I wanted to write books myself and their mm. accomplishments made me feel inadequate, frankly. Um, now, I should say, in case any of those friends are listening, you know who you are, that by my mid-30s, I was over this condition. I delighted in my friends' books. I read them cover to cover. But to be honest, Caleb, I've always been embarrassed by this block because I knew how petty it was. I knew it reflected poorly on me. And I'm only able to share this now because Will's book helped me put a name to the forces that were at work. It was all about status. And when you say that you got over it, do you think it was that uh, your inability to read your friend's books? I mean, do you think it was that you just grew up or do you think it was that you kind of said to yourself like, oh, well, you know what? I'm not winning the who's written the most books game, but I'm doing pretty well in other status games. So that basically your status rose and that sort of compensated for this lack of status in the in the publishing game. And that allowed you to sort of get over the hump. Boy, you're really not going to let me take any credit for becoming wiser <laughs> and more enlightened. And I think I, I think the point is well taken because I I would like to say that I just became more mature, mm. wiser, uh, more confident. But I I think certainly uh, something else was going on. I used to joke that I'm I'm starting a new company in order not to write a novel, mm. and the plan is working perfectly. <laughs> uh, and I think it's possible that. My status was rising in other games I was playing. I was building some companies and and so I didn't feel as threatened. Mm. But something I learned from Will's book, which, which I have to say made me feel a little bit better about myself is that the small, ungenerous response I had to my friend's success was deeply human. Mm. Will cites this study that found that when people read about someone popular, rich, and smart, the pain center of their brain flares up. <laughs> I love this. And when they read that that person suffered a setback, their pleasure system lights up. It's just incredible. It reminds me that uh, the Gore Vidal quote, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. Totally. I love that quote. I, I, I hate to think the rise of my friend's status caused me pain, that something in me died, but it does seem to be a very human response. You know, something else I'll say about Will's book that was sort of counterintuitive is that it, it's helped me feel a little bit better about humanity, actually. Hmm. Um, I don't know about you, but I found I found humans, my fellow humans, to be kind of frustrating in recent years. Sure. Why are we so righteous, so stubborn, so fervent in our views, whether or not they're correct? Uh, and looking at our behavior through the lens of status, as well as my own behavior, has been clarifying for me. And while we can't opt out of the status game, we can control which games we choose to play and how we play them. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. Uh, okay, so let's take a quick break and then we'll hear your interview with Will, Will Store. And then at the end, you and I can come back and chat for a minute about some of our takeaways. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Will Store, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks for having me, Rufus. You may not realize this, Will, but you have an uncanny knack for writing the books that I've been looking for. I have been thinking for years about like the neuroscience of stories, because it's mm-hmm. always struck me that like stories seem to have this kind of, be this magical key to the human mind, to, to how we persuade people, to how we're deluded. And then I find that you've written a brilliant book about this. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Thank you. And, and then meanwhile, I, I've been fascinated for years and years by status. I've always suspected that this was something that was hardwired. And then we have sort of all the different ways that we measure status in different societies. And now you've written a book about this. So this is so so thank you for reading my mind and writing books on on such fascinating topics. Well, thanks for reading them and thanks for I'm glad you enjoyed them. Well, here will are the, are the opening words of your book. Life is a game. There's no way to understand the human world without first understanding this. Everyone alive is playing a game whose hidden rules are built into us and that silently direct our thoughts, beliefs, and actions. This game is inside us. It is us. And this game, of course, is the status game. So do you see status as the essential human motivator? Is is this kind of a unified field theory of human behavior that everything boils down to to status? No. No, no, I, I, I don't think everything boils down to status, but I think a lot does. Psychologists often talk about getting along and getting ahead, so belongingness and status. So we want to feel mm-hmm. loved, but also mm-hmm. admired. And you know, I, I do write a bit about the belongingness in the book because you know, part mm-hmm. of is about status games, and part of playing a game is you've got to be accepted into the group. Um, but but mostly this is about the second, you know, the getting ahead part. So yeah, it's not like a theory of, of everything in the sense that everything boils down to status, but it's certainly it's a theory of a lot because I think a hell of a lot does. Well, I think it may be useful for listeners to define what we mean by status. You know, people immediately think of kind of fame and money, but those are maybe just some flavors of status. How, how do you define it? Yeah, I, I think one, one of the problems is that when, when you say, oh, everybody's motivated by status, what they hear when you say that is, oh, everybody wants to be famous, everybody wants to be rich. That, that isn't what it is. I mean, fame and money are, are two ways you can measure status, but there are infinite ways you can measure, you know, status. Like a, a, somebody playing a kind of an ascetic kind of monk-based status game will um, measure their status on how little they can get they can get on with, and how little they can eat, and how um, simply they can live. So, so it's much more complex than saying it's simply about the pursuit of fame and money. Um, fundamentally, it's about feeling valued. We want to feel valued by our group. That that's what status is, and that's a very good evolutionary, you know, reasons. We we spend most of our time evolving the human condition in the context of hunter gatherer groups of you know highly cooperative um, groups, and so they had to develop a, a system of incentive and reward to kind of goad us into being uh, useful members of that group. And so this is what that system of reward is, is that when, when we proved ourselves valuable to that hunter-gatherer group, either, either with acts mm-hmm. of great competence or by being a kind of virtuous, selfless person, we were rewarded with uh, status. And so, so, so we've evolved this kind of fundamental basic rule of life, which is be of value 
um, uh, and if you if you are perceived to be of value, then you will be rewarded with status. Where did this need for status come from? Why why are we so obsessed with it? Well, as I say, I mean, it's actually you know it, it, it's older than the human condition, but 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 sticking with the you know with, with humanity, um, yeah. as I said before, it, it all goes back to the hunter gatherer tribe. You know, yeah. you know, human beings are lots of things, and one of the things we are, are often quite selfish and self interested. So, so there has to be a, a system of rewards such that that kind of rewards people who are of value to the group. Otherwise, people wouldn't bother being of value to the group. And so, so what you find um, when you you look at hunter-gatherer groups, both of the kinds we evolved in and the kinds of pre-modern groups that exist today, you find that they are um, ha- have a hierarchy and that the more status that you earn within those groups, the better everything gets. So the more food you get, the better quality food you get, the safer your sleeping sites, the better the conditions of life um, for your children. Mm-hmm the greater um, access to your choice of mates. So all of that s- stuff plugs directly into to survival and reproduction. And of course, survival and re- reproduction being the most kind of fundamental, you know, urges that, that, that living things have. And for humans, the, the more status you get, the, the, the better your ability to survive and reproduce. So it's, it's that fundamental. It's absolutely plugged into, you know, the, the very basis of our, you know, um, motivations in, in life. And the research bears this out. I think you cite a meta-study of 186 pre-modern societies around the world that show that consistently men of higher status invariably had greater wealth and more wives and provided better nourishment for their children. One can see why some aspects of status that seem, you know, today it might be how many likes you have on a post or something, right? Yeah. And that can seem trivial. But we evolved to have this kind of obsession with status. The argument would be in an environment within which this actually resulted in a higher probability of of, of surviving, procreating, and flourishing. That's exactly it. Yeah, I mean, we've evolved to crave status. We haven't evolved to crave money or likes. We've evolved to crave status. Um, But what, what the kind of, you know, human life adds is, you know, we have infinite ways of playing status games and, and there are infinite ways you can you can mark your status and, and, and we're so obsessed with it. We'll, we'll create, you know, <laughs> any kind of game you can imagine and social media is just, just the latest form of human status game. This claim that our obsession with status, with increasing our status, with constantly measuring our status in all these subtle ways, if we'll get into some of this research, it's kind of amazing, is I think a controversial claim that upsets some people. There's a kind of dark and some might say cynical or tragic element to this, right? Which is that the status game is a zero-sum game by definition. Not everyone can be high status, right? There there have to be losers in the status game. It's a relative, status is relative. Um, mm-hmm. And as as humanists and as optimists, we don't want to <laughs> believe that there's like a sorting mechanism for human beings that's a zero-sum game. And uh, like as, as Harari put it in Sapiens, he said, the story we tell ourselves that everybody is equal is a fiction. And if status is hardwired, there's no avoiding the idea that they're, they're, they're winners and losers and there always will be. Do you see this as threatening to the the liberal egalitarian dream? 
it's a disaster to the egalitarian dream because it because it says it's just it's an impossibility and and we know it's an impossibility not simply because of just the enormous amount of scientific research there is in, in in how the brain works from all kinds of angles, from neuroscience, from evolutionary psychology, from social psychology. I mean, you know, God, you, you put four people in a room together, complete strangers, and uh, and let them just chat for half an hour. And then by the end of that half an hour, a, a rough hierarchy will have asserted itself with, the, you know, <laughs> with, with, the, with the highest status person on top and, and, and the hierarchy moving down. Like, you know... We, we can't stop doing it. It's it, it's it, it's wired in, and you know. And the final chapter of the status game looks at the communism because I think the ultimate mm, yeah, proof yeah. of this really is the communist experiment because it was this enormous experiment. Mm. You know, communism was all about okay, um, let's create a world in which there's no status in which everybody is equal. So, you know, we mentioned before about psychologists say getting along and getting ahead. We're going to get rid of the getting ahead part. It's all going to be getting yeah. along. So the early purist communists, they, they're even talks about sharing wives, you know, and, and husbands and, 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 there, and there being no family. So pure egalitarianism. And of course it just didn't work because, you know, what actually happened was that you just got a different kind of hierarchy with the, you know, people who, who identified as peasants at the top and the people who used to be kind of part of the bourgeoisie middle classes at the bottom who got discriminated against and kicked about and treated, you know, tortured and killed and treated appallingly. Um, in the book, I talk about this sociologist that went to the Soviet Union in the 50s and found 12 distinct social classes, which is more than we had in England at the time. You know, this, this notoriously class-bound society. And it all goes down to this fundamental mistake that Marx and Engels and the early communist thinkers made. And the, and, and the mistake was this, that they, they, they said, well, you know, where does the status desire come from? Well, it comes from inequality. So, you know, if, if I have a house and I'm proud of my house, but somebody comes and builds mm. a house next door to me that's bigger, I suddenly won't be happy with my house. So let's just make let's just get rid of private property completely and make everybody house, everybody's house an equal size. Well, that's fine, but but it, but it's a mistake. The mistake they made was thinking the status urge comes from inequality and private ownership. It doesn't. It, it's in our brains. It's wired in. So you cannot eradicate it. And the communist experiment kind of proves that. You know, you know everything from the you know crazy um, level of kind of class stratification they had in the Soviet Union to the cult of personality that surrounded. You know Stalin and the communist leaders. I mean, you know, geez, you want to see status? Look at the way that people behaved around Stalin whilst he was still alive. Well, I know from having conversations with friends on this uh, about your wonderful book in the last couple of weeks that it's going to be a process to convince listeners that this is true, <laughs> that that status is hardwired, because it it really violates something sacred that we'd like to believe about our potential as humans, right? I think there is a lot of great news and, and very useful conclusions we can come to once we're convinced that status is innate. But <laughs> but but I feel like it's it's gonna require trotting out some more of the evidence in your extraordinary book that that convinced me 311 pages later that this was true. But 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 I want to also establish first that the stakes of this, of status and how it impacts people are very high. You know, you talk about the impact on health Right yeah. and 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 this study on the British civil service and health outcomes. You want to you want to share that? Yeah. So this is a famous set of studies called the Whitehall studies by Dr. Michael Marmot, and the Whitehall is the British civil service. Uh, you know, so it's incredibly enormous organisation, hugely stratified. And um, what Marmot and his team discovered was that the lower you drop down 
the status hierarchy of Whitehall, the worse your health outcomes become and the higher your mortality. Now, the first thing you're going to think is, oh, well, that's obvious. It's because rich people, you know, they get to, they get to afford to shop at Whole Foods and, you know, they get the personal trainer, they're, they're less sure. likely to smoke. But, but, but that's, that's not what they found. They found like a, like, a, like a wealthy smoker, just one rung below the very top was more likely to fall ill as, as a result of their smoking than the person above them. They also found this, um, you know, separate set of academics found this um, in baboons. That they, that, so, so they did a test where they um, had baboons in a laboratory and these unlucky stroke lucky baboons were given a really unhealthy diet of junk food to live on for a while. So, so they developed sort of unhealthy bodies and, and, and high levels of atherosclerotic plaque. And uh, they found, just like in Whitehall, that the you know they were all equally unhealthy but 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 it was the baboons towards the bottom of the hierarchy that were more likely to fall ill as a result of their bad diets than the one at the top and then crucially i don't know how they did this but cru- but they, they they conspired to rearrange the hierarchy of the baboon troop and they found that the health outcomes changed in lockstep with the re- with the rearrangement of the hierarchy so the new top baboons were suddenly healthier and had better outcomes than baboons beneath them so it even you know sinks down to um our, our physical health this status stuff you know and it's our happiness i mean one of the one of the major studies that i quote in the book and actually the, the study that made me want to write the book was this one that looked at sixty thousand people across 123 countries and they found that people's um, well-being consistently depended upon the degree to which they felt respected by other people and that status was the strongest predictor of long-term positive or negative feelings so that's that, that that's stronger than money that's you know you know so status is, is more important to people's happiness than family money and all those other things so you know that 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 was extraordinary to me and the, and the fact that it that they found this across gender culture age personality you know wherever they looked um you know, all around the world they found that this was true this fascinated me when I first read it, you know, because I, I wondered, well, why would lower status negatively impact health, negatively impact longevity? And you explain, mm-hmm. when we're not doing well in the game of life, our bodies prepare for crisis by switching our settings so we're readied for attack. It increases inflammation, which helps the healing of any physical wounds. So, so it's basically a kind of crisis response, right? Like when we feel low status in our peer group, in our environment, our bodies are preparing for possible physical violence or, 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 or negative yeah. outcomes. And unfortunately, that same inflammation has the impact of causing cancer and having really negative long-term health outcomes. Yes, yes, exactly. So inflammation was designed for the short term, like when we're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, you know, in the in the old environment. So we're not supposed to be inflamed for very long. We mentioned before the the other important thing, which is belongingness, and it's the same with belongingness. You know, I think more famously, loneliness is also very bad for your health for the same reason. So when right, the, when the subconscious right. brain detects that we are isolated, we have a deprivation in connection, or we're relatively low status, it's the same. Thing that the, the brain will go. Okay, things are bad. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, this is a period of risk. I need to change my, yeah, you know, my settings such that inflammation goes up and antiviral response goes down. There are all these times in our everyday lives when status plays a role in the in these kinds of subtle ways because our, as you say, our status detection system is constantly working in the background, constantly noticing 
you know, how much eye contact we're receiving from other people, or, 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 or in one study, how much orange juice is being allocated <laughs> right yeah. to different people, right? Uh, yeah. And 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 this 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 rang true to me. Do you, you want to talk about the orange juice and the eye contact? I, I found that extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. So 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 neuroscientists talk about that. That's their phrase, the status detection system. So it's always on. We're always measuring. Because the thing about status is not like money. Like you can't you can't collect your status in a box and and sh- and show everybody. Look at my status. Look at my status. Status is is offered, but to, to you by other people. Um. So so even you know Kanye West and Kim Kardashian and Paul McCartney and you know Meghan Markle get chippy about status because it's always in flux. It's always in question, and you know I, 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 it, it can always be kind of withdrawn. So the, I love the Orange Juice study too because it was one of those ones that felt ridiculous, but also completely completely true uh, and it's this idea that that if you pour a group of people measures of orange juice but one person gets a little bit less orange juice than everybody else that person will become preoccupied and you know obsessed about what's you know why have i got less orange juice and of course it's it's not they're not upset because they got one mouthful less of orange juice they've got upset because their brain's status detection system read that as i'm i've been judged as of being less value to all these other people um, so yeah, I mean, so that was just one of the kind of you know studies I thought was it just felt like it captured something essential about the human condition. I'm always aware of this when I'm when I'm sitting with a group of people that the eye contact and the allocation of eye contact seems to be a pretty good indication of how that person, say the person speaking reads the status of all the other people that, that, that you know yeah. uh that they're sitting with right and so in in some cases it can be uncomfortable like um you you'll you'll have a situation where um you're focusing on on someone because you think they're the decision maker in a in a business setting um mm. and you later you later learn it was somebody else who was the decision maker and because of the of the unequal eye contact you basically communicated a lack of respect for the for, you know yeah. uh, uh to the other person uh, I, I i i'm sometimes made made uncomfortable by uh, a situation where somebody's looking at me disproportionately and i'm trying to signal to them to look at other people um <laughs> but but it it, it 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 does strike me as being like a uh something that that people are subconsciously highly aware of but often not fully consciously aware of yeah definitely i mean i noticed it with my 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 wife i mean we've been together for 20 years and um when we met i was a uh, you know i was i'm a slightly older so i was slightly ahead in my career and uh, and there was this extraordinarily obvious point where where she became an editor of a magazine and as soon as she became an editor in social occasions i i suddenly noticed that i wasn't the eye contact i wasn't getting it anymore and it was just interesting. really interesting to me how not only how, how i really noticed that <laughs> and you know i started to be sort of ignored at parties when i was with um my wife because she was a magazine editor which is you know perceived as be in the in media circles in which i was sort of traveling she's perceived as being um higher status than me and 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 it was it was a really sudden i mean i remember the night it happened it was like oh god that was really weird and it was you know i i was self-aware enough to kind of chuckle a bit at it but it but it but it was very it was very noticeable and now you you've just accepted your your lower status yeah it depends on on where we are sometimes if people are if it's a books crowd right, 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 right. get used to not getting any eye contact but if it's a magazine kind of fashion crowd um it's the other way right. around so yeah 
Yeah, it's so interesting. So I, I was fascinated to, to read that our status detection system registers facial markers for dominance or submission in 43 milliseconds. Yeah. Because I would say that high status people tend to speak more often and more loudly. They're perceived to be more facially expressive. They achieve more successful interruptions in conversation. They touch themselves less. They use more relaxed, open postures. And this surprised me, use more filled pauses such as um and ah, and have a steadier vocal tone. So I thought we're not supposed to um and ah, but apparently that's a sign of being higher status. Well, apparently so. That, 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 that's, that, that's what they say. Yeah, I was, I was quite surprised by that one too. But I, I guess there's a there's, there's a limit to the ums and ahs that you're at. I mean, the, the other one they said is that you know, very prestigious, high status people are much more self deprecating. They kind of laugh oh, yes. and joke more. Right. I thought so. I thought I thought that was you know that that was really interesting. You know, what one place where I find the status game to be highly comical is on airlines. So I've, I've, I had the good fortune when I was, you know, spending more time traveling for business, sometimes ending up in first class, like at the front of the mm -hmm. bus, right? And But I've spent, let me say, well, most of my time in the back of the bus, <laughs> right? In the, you know, in, in coach. And mm -hmm. I, I just find the our, our rituals around air travel to be just hysterical because, you, you know, first we sort of trot out the first class passengers. Everybody, you know, the crowds part. And, and, and the first class passengers sort of march forward with kind of aloof, looking happy with themselves. <laughs> then we parade all the coach passengers past the first class passengers who are now reclined in their thrones, like slowly, okay. languorously turning the pages of high status magazines or whatever yeah. they're doing. Okay. Um, then we draw the curtains closed. And a few hours later, we release the smell of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies into the airplane <laughs> <laughs> that only the first class people will receive. And I mean, so much of it is, is you know, and now there are like six different types levels of boarding groups and you can pay an extra $25 to board a little bit earlier and people are very eager to line up and you know yeah. get in their cramp cramp seat you know five minutes earlier and uh it, it, it just always struck me it's just very funny display of, of how we parade these yeah these, these I mean, sort of small distinctions in status I, I was i was flown somebody flew me um recently in business class which is very nice coming back from um singapore and um it was you know these days, obviously, they have those flat beds in uh, in business class, and I was just sort of yeah, oh, yeah. getting tucked. Oh, my flat bed! It was lovely, and it occurred to me like I, I'd loved it. You know, it was, I was so comfortable, and it was I was so it was oh, you know, I'm in business class. It's so nice, and then it occurred to me that actually, by, by all usual measures, it was a terrible situation. I was basically in a dormitory, full of, <laughs> yeah, right, you know, right. thirty two complete strangers. My feet, my socked feet, were inches away from a complete stranger's That's socked right. feet. I could, you know, I could see his television uh, in in my field of vision um so by any other standard if you were to say oh hi will this is where we're sleeping tonight and i was on land i'd be like i i, I am not sleeping in this, in this dormitory <laughs> i'm, not, it, I'm yeah. not a student anymore and yet i was i was delighted and and the thing was even though i realized actually this is horrific it didn't make any difference. I was still enjoyed it. I still loved it. It was so weird. Right. Um, but, right. And it's all yeah. about, it's got to be all about the status, isn't it? Because it's, because it's right. even business class on a flight is, it's not rough. I don't want to say it's rough, but do you know what I mean? It's, it, it, you feel yeah. like you're, it's palatial, but it isn't palatial. It's a dormitory, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, and meanwhile, there are some extraordinary examples of how status and status games play themselves out in other parts of the world. Um, can we talk about yams? Oh, yeah, we can talk about yams. Yeah. 
<laughs> Shall I explain the ants? I, I wish you would. Yeah, I just love yeah. the story. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, this, so, so, so this is um, a really interesting anthropological study of a group um, uh, down in the Micronesian island of Pompeii, and I just thought this was a really great example of how status manifests in in human groups. So in Pompeii. Um, life is like it is in most places which is very stratified uh, and it's very hard for people to kind of there's not much social mobility in 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 pompeii but there is one way that you can um you know rise through the ranks of, of status uh, and that's if um there, there are these biannual chiefly feasts and the man who, who um brings the largest yam to that feast is publicly declared number one they're literally declared number one and they're celebrated by the entire community. So what, what's happened on Pompeii is that, you know, naturally enough, um, the men of the island have become absolutely obsessed with growing massive yams. Um, they, they will grow them in secret plots in, you know, in the woodland far away from the house and creep out of their house at like two or three in the morning to tend to them. Um, <laughs> the, 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 this kind of very complex system of moral kind of etiquette has bloomed up around the yam growing. So, so, so it's taboo to look at another man's yams because you, you, you know, it's like you're taking their <laughs> yam growing secrets. And it's so taboo yeah. that um, even the yams you're going next to your house, which are for eating, they're little yams. You're not even allowed to look at those. And even that is now seen as taboo so they're obsessed with massive yams um on pompeii but what i thought was especially interesting was and you know speaks to the value of status and actually the the, the kind of functional you know wonderful role that, that the status pursuit plays in human life was that the islands of pompeii have, have become absolutely incredible at growing massive yams mm. so um the yams are so big over there that, that that they have to um construct special stretchers to carry them into the feast and you've got like multiple i think six men carrying one yam into, into the feast so that to me spoke a of just how crazy you know we become over the things that we decide signal status but also how fantastically brilliant we are you know when we focus our minds on it at you know creating value uh, to justify our claim to status right 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 exactly i mean how, how do you grow yams that large i don't know what kind of like optimization of fertilizers or crossbreeding or what's going on. And, and, and what's extraordinary is these, I don't know, 80 pound, whatever, however large these yams are, probably don't taste that good, right? They're probably relatively bland. Like this is not Look, optimizing for taste at all, right? I had that same thought. It's like a big a big tomato it doesn't taste good. It's like powdery <laughs> right. and uh, yeah, yeah, I bet they taste horrible. <laughs> but but, yeah, but yeah. they decided that, um, that this signals status. And so, uh, you know, they go for it. You can't even look at another man's yams, but you can think about them and, and you can compare yes. yours. Um, the, uh, uh, but what's extraordinary about this is, again, it's another example of, of how the currency of status, the way that we measure it, can be very, very different. It might be Facebook likes, it might be uh, money, it might be your car, it might be your Amazon sales ranking for your book, uh, it, it, or it might be the size of your yams. Like this is totally fungible, yeah. the, way that, the way that we measure status. And yet in every corner of the world, we find status obsession, even when people go to great lengths to express a lack of interest in status, right? The, the, you know, mm. this really, to me, drove the point home, right? That when people spend years learning to meditate with the express purpose of of overcoming any investment in ego, there's still no escaping it. Uh, do you want to share that? Uh, I think this yeah, was a study that was in, in the Netherlands, right? 
Yeah. There was this great study in the Netherlands where they they found 3,700 people who practiced mindfulness meditation specifically to reduce attachment to ego needs such as social approval and success. And they found that these people um, scored very high in what they described as spiritual superiority. <laughs> surprise, surprise, these people who discovered this thing and, and practiced hard at and mindfulness meditation and got really good at it started to think quite well of themselves and actually started looking down their nose slightly at uh, people who didn't have the amazing insights into the, the human condition they had. And I love that study because it was, again, it's like the orange juice one. It just felt like it really had captured something about the human condition because it was like, of course, that's what they, they, they think. Like you can't, you know, of course, that's what they, that's yes, what they think. Right, right. Um, because that's what people are like. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I now think, Will, that we may have persuaded more of our listeners that status is in fact innate. Our, our obsession with status, our attention to status, our desire to earn more status. But the, the last place where, where my mind might have gone uh, is, is these examples of egalitarian tribes. Um, mm. And we had, you, know, you may know of uh, David Wengrow and, da and the late David Graeber, who wrote a wonderful book called The Dawn of Everything about a closer look at human prehistory and examples of more egalitarian living. And so obviously we, we, we are capable as a species of living in more egalitarian ways. However, as it turns out, that takes an enormous amount of policing, <laughs> right? Or it's not yeah. a, uh, it's it's not a it's not an easy thing to achieve. Hey, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, you're right to say to describe them not as egalitarian, but more egalitarian. I think I think mm -hmm. that's the key. Mm -hmm. They are more egalitarian because they don't have things like you know 
private possessions and uh, so, so much and and you know land and, and all that and all that stuff so so you know big status differentials aren't allowed to accrue but they remain relatively egalitarian because uh, th- there's enormous level of policing of each other's status and, they, and 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 that level of policing happens because everybody is extremely chippy about their own status everybody you know is is determined that, that nobody will you know play the big man or the big woman and come strutting in dominating the group so that egalitarian appearance uh, in in pre-modern groups is a direct result of everybody being very 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 interested in the level of each other's status and making sure that nobody grabs too much of it right 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 i think we can say that there are maybe ways of playing the status game that are kinder to a larger number of people and leave everybody feeling more connected and maybe that's a positive right so you can have sort of Definitely. a diversification of uh, of different types of status different types of status games so so you might have in a given community as you point out many times in the book you know so and so is great at finding tubers you know sammy over here is great at finding honey and that's boy that's great we love having sam around to find the honey right and then so and so is a great yeah. hunter right and we so we can have this distribution of different strengths that give everyone mm-hmm. a kind of high status for for their specific specific skills they bring to bear but still if anyone gets kind of overly happy with themselves and, and, and overly cocky because they've just dragged a, a stag to the village or what have you, the whole community will, will, will surround them and sing a song of derision if necessary, <laughs> to put to put them back in their place, right? That's right. That's an Inuit tribe. They do that. They surround them and, and sing a song of right. derision in their face. I mean, and, I, and I think the key thing is in human groups, generally speaking, status is given by other people. So it's okay for us to say, man, right, you, right. you did some really yeah. great tuba finding today. I really appreciate that. That's wonderful. Yeah. But 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 we don't like people who kind of strut in and going, oh, I'm the king of the tuba finders. You know, that that, that upsets people. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, because 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 status is given by the group. It's a reward serviced by the group. Interesting. Right. And and I think we can also say that that there are different types of status, different types of status games we play. You talk about three in particular, and maybe some of them are healthier than others. Yeah. So there's there's three kinds of different status game that we can play. There's the dominance game. So dominance we've been using since before we were human, and dominance is basically violence, but 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 also the threat of violence, uh, and not just physical violence, but also social violence. So ostracization, bullying, humiliation, all of those things. So 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 people can play dominant status games. You know, like Putin is is playing a game mm. of dominance over Ukraine at the moment. You know, quite clearly, and um, Zelensky's is pushing back with dominance and that, that so that's that's war it's also mafias uh, you know it's it's, it's also a boxing match so th- th- those are dominance games um but then when we settled down and became characteristically human and we start living in cooperative groups dominance wasn't very good as a way of getting on in life because you know you can't just go around beating everybody up and threatening people all the time so we evolved these kind of prestige forms of status and and two main ones you know one is you know, we already talked about success games so competence mm-hmm. you can be valuable to the being a great sorcerer, a great honey finder, a great storyteller, and so on. When you show value to your group being very good at stuff, you get rewarded with status. But the other one is virtue. So, so, so you know, th- there's another form of status game, which is the virtue game, which is, and that's all about 
following the rules, knowing the rules, enforcing the rules, believing the sacred beliefs. So you can think about a church, uh, like a religion is a virtue game. The British royal family is a virtue game. It's not about competence mm. to the royal family. It's not about dominance anymore. It's about virtue. Yeah. It's about believing, accepting that, that, that King Charles really is a wonderful person and following all the rules. I mean, the royal family is all about rules, saying the right thing, bowing in the right way, mm. all of that stuff. So that, that's, a, that, that's a classic virtue game. And you can yeah. see, you know, Elon Musk is a, or Kanye West are superstars of success games. Uh, but Michelle Obama and the Pope are superstars of virtue games. And so one would think at, at first blush that, that playing virtue status games would be better than, than the others. But I think, I think you say that often virtue status games can be among the most pernicious. Yeah. I mean, the problem with virtue is that um, it's always local to your group. It's always local to the game that you're playing. So every status game has its own particular idea of what is virtuous and what isn't. So, you know, the easiest way to explain it is just to say that Hitler thought he was a good, virtuous man. He mm. thought he was ridding the world of um, ridding the world of the Jews was, was, was a virtuous thing because he, he genuinely believed the hideous anti-Semitic, you know, lie of inherent Jewish evil and conniving, you know, um, uh, Lenin and Stalin, uh, for all their kind of violence and insanity, thought they were virtuous people because they were spearheading the communist project, which was all about community and sharing and, um, you know, was was utopian. It wanted to create this paradise on earth. So, and the, the problem with virtue is that it does this kind of evil thing where it says, um, because my game and my rules are, vir are virtuous, um, anyone that rivals me is against virtue, and that gives me permission to hate, attack, and destroy them. And so you see that time and time again. Um, you know, most most obviously in in the, in the current years on on social media, where where yeah. people who play virtue games on social media very often mix that virtue play with 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 elements of dominance and and you know, go on the attack and try and to destroy people's reputations and jobs and, and so on, all, all in the name of their, their, their own game's definition of virtue. Well, and, and social networks have made it that much more dangerous, right? I mean, and social networks have just been status game accelerators, right? I mean, this, is, this has just been enabling this kind of core instinct of ours. Absolutely. I mean, and then that to me is that's why social media, I mean, social media is an extraordinary thing because it's become instantly, globally, enormously successful. I mean, the latest figures are that more than half the world use social media, more than 4 billion people use social media. And when you think of the amount of people in the world who don't have phones mm. and who are too young wow. to use social media, still it's 4 billion. Um, so, so, so why has it become so instantly and globally cross-culturally successful? Well, mm -hmm. I think because it's a brand new way that we can earn status. The social media is dominance, virtue, and success. Is people pushing each other around? Is people signalling their beliefs mm -hmm. yep. and um, their, you know, their, 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 their virtuous, their claims to virtue-based status? But also they're signalling their success. You know, look at LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Look at people's holidays on Instagram. Um, you know, when I'm posting book reviews on Twitter, that's all claims to you know, you know, when I when I tweet our conversation on my social media, that's going to be a hey guys, look, I was I was I was on this great podcast, you know. So so so, so, so that, that's what social media is. It's, it's human life. It's dominance, virtue, and yeah, and success, yeah. and it, and it's become incredibly successful, incredibly powerful because 
it's a it's a brand new way that we can um, play status games. And virtue is the easiest game of all to play. All you've got to do to have a bit of virtue status is 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 fire up your social media platform, have a pop at somebody that you don't like, and all your followers will tell you you're wonderful. So 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 it's extremely easy to earn a bit of um, virtue status on on social media. Well, maybe at your next cocktail party, when everybody's making eye contact with your wife, the famous magazine editor, some of them may have have, have seen uh, have have seen a social tweet about your extraordinary interview on the next Big Idea podcast, so you'll get more eye contact as far as possible. Um, but the uh, but you know, I was fascinated by what you had to say about the role of gossip networks. And and this notion that gossip is a mechanism through which we reallocate status. So interesting. Yeah. So gossip is, a, is, a, is, a, is you know, is, is a fundamental human behavior. Around 60, 65 percent of our conversational time is spent talking about other people. And that's for men and for women, contrary to the kind of slightly sexist um, idea that, that women gossip more than men. Um, so yeah, yeah, and and that's that's kind of what we're doing when we're gossip is we're, is we're allocating or removing um, status. So the, you know the prestige games of virtue and success are we we play with our reputation. You know that you know we have a reputation for being successful, we have a mm-hmm. reputation for being virtue, virtuous or otherwise. And you know historically that those reputations have lived or died in the ways that people are kind of gossiping about us, and and you can kind of see. Um, the media as just uh, the, the latest iteration of a tribal gossip network. And it's the same with social media. I mean, that's, that's what, when, when people are talking about people, other people on social media, um, they are kind of a, 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 very often assigning or removing status from that person. Yeah, yeah. Well, one one comment in the book that really made an impact for me was was I, th- I think you mentioned that anthropologist Robin Dunbar suggested that we evolved speech in order to gossip. And if that's true, if our ability to communicate emerged because we needed to reallocate status through gossip and enforce the rules of the tribe, that's that 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 that's uh suggests an even an even more central role to the to the status game in our evolution. Yeah, it, yeah, it, precisely. I mean, you know, this is the current dominant theory that that we evolved language to stop gossip because that's how that's how the tribe remain functional. You you can't have a system of punishment and reward that keeps the tribe functional without language. It, you know, the, an earlier theory was that we, you know, language evolved to help us coordinate in hunts and so on. But of course, you know, animals, wolves can can coordinate perfectly well in hunts without having mm-hmm. uh, sophisticated language. So, so, so it makes a lot of sense, uh, and also the the, the completely universal um, nature of gossip—the the fact that it's it, that it you know that it is universal, that it that it takes up around sixty sixty five percent of our conversational load, uh, and also that children, almost as soon as they can talk, automatically start gossiping, start telling mm-hmm. stories uh, about brothers and sisters, and this person did this, and that person did that, and. Uh, you know, it's it's wired into our our human behavior, and and one outcome. So these gossip networks are, of course, powerful uh, forces that can sometimes uh, result in the humiliation of individuals. And you talk in the book about the danger of humiliation, which one researcher called the nuclear bomb of emotions. And this is interesting because, as you as you've noted, that if status is so essential to to our our happiness and our our, our drives as humans, 
then a collapse of status is kind of a case study in what happens if 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 status is removed from a human, right? And, and it, as it turns out, the the results are are pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, it was actually as I, as I was sort of thinking about this as a possible book and and thinking, you know, is it true what I'm going to be arguing? And you know, when, when I hadn't really done mm-hmm. anywhere near as much of the research. That, that I've done now, um, I, I sort of gave myself a little test that, you know, is, I remember thinking, well, hmm. if you're going to argue status is so important, it must be pretty bad when it gets taken away from us. So let's look into, you know, what happens. And so I came upon this upon this paper called Humiliation and Its Consequences. And the psychologists who wrote that paper describe humiliation as not only the removal of status, but the removal of status that's so dramatic and complete that you, the, the, that you are unable to claim status from that group at any point in the future. So you're basically cancelled, you're gone, you're kicked out. You know, what they find is that humiliation is right there in the very, very worst of human um, behaviours. Everything from serial killers to incel spree killers to terrorists to honour killers, um, uh, all the way up to genocide um, has humiliation absolutely kind of embedded into it so that to me was the you know beyond all the this study says stuff that that was the thing that 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 really convinced me personally that status was that important just 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 because it just seemed like this hideous (laughs) evil thread that connected all these terrible um, behaviors together was the sudden and public removal of status I mean, you look into some specific cases of like the Unabomber and others, and and consistently it, it tends to be a case of the collapse of of status and individuals not feeling feeling valued by their community, and and the only thing they can think to do to some degree is to take this just crushing sense of shame mm-hmm. and convert it into pride, e- even if it's uh, has horrendous uh, repercussions. Yeah, I, I, and what what I found was that you know the most evil acts tend to be by men because men are violent, um, much more violent than women. Um, so, so so that was kind of obvious. But but what was less obvious was that um, a that they were humiliated, but also crucially they were quite narcissistic to start off with. Um, so often these kind of you know people who do who commit very evil acts are grandiose. So they by their nature already feel entitled to a high level of status. So when you take a very grandiose man who, who feels entitled to a high level of status and humiliate yeah. them again and again and again and again, you end up you know, very often with an extremely dangerous individual. I was haunted by this proverb, the child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. Mm. Uh, it's just, just uh, haunting. Turning to the positive, Will, because <laughs> there are <laughs> there are some really positive uh, conclusions that one can can draw and that you share with readers in this book. You know, first of all, for me, there's this incredibly useful and I think hopeful explanatory power of of understanding a lot of what's been so confusing about our world in the last you know many years through this kind of corrective lens of understanding, you know, uh, our desire for status. Mm. And um, I I think a lot of people that I know, and undoubtedly that you know, and, uh, you know, have been feeling kind of confused and disheartened by the level of political polarity and and just not understanding Mm. why am I no longer able to understand the behavior of 
large numbers of other humans. It, you know, it's it's really disorienting. And I think for me, the story you tell of the young mother who became an anti-vaxxer was really helpful in trying to understand because you know like if you're someone who believes your kids should be should be vaccinated and, and that all children should be it's very hard to understand why you end up with this this subculture that's so rapidly passionate about this position and i think i i think your explanation is very very helpful yeah, I, I, it was helpful to me to understand this stuff too. So there are certain status games that that form around a belief. You know, so religion is is an obvious example. If you, you know, an, an entry into the status game is simply a matter of do you believe this thing? Do you believe that Jesus was the Son of God and rose again after three days? Yes, you do. Okay, you're you're in the Catholic game, you know, or you're a Christian game. You, you know, I I, th I think the fundamental thing to understand is that the human brain doesn't care that much about what's true. What it really cares about is, what do I have to believe in order to earn status in my community? And humans are capable of believing pretty much anything if they, if they, if they feel that their status is attached to it. And I think this is the fundamental kind of thing to understand about why these crazy beliefs come around. They come around, I would say, probably always in the context of a community. And, and that community is a status game. And entry into it is a matter of believing, but rising through that game is a matter of allowing that belief to kind of take you over and you sort of, and, and you, you almost become um, that, that belief becomes a parasite on your character and your behavior. And this, this woman, she was fascinating. So she, she was um, pregnant. She was 18. All her friends were at college and she'd seen a documentary about home births and decided she wanted a home birth, but she um, has struggled to find a midwife that would, would give her a home birth, but she eventually did. And, 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 um, this woman came in and she had, I forget, I think it was, she had several children of her own and she was this very strong, confident woman. And, 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 you know, she said, Oh, I, you know, I love, that's my thing. I love strong, confident women. I've grown up in, in a, in a, in a female household. So I really admired her. She was a successful mom. She was, you know, um, somebody that I just naturally looked up to. And at the end of the, um, first meeting she said have you considered not vaccinating your child and she thought well that's a crazy thing to suggest what, what why why would i consider not vaccinating my child what a mad thing to say and she said well just google it you'll find some information on google so of course she she googled it and found all this sort of rotten information on google about how vaccination is a conspiracy and so on and she found um a facebook group called great moms questioning vaccines and she she, she kind of joined the group and announced herself as Vaccine hesitant was the phrase that she used. I think it's a common phrase in that world. Huh. And they immediately kind of, you know, surrounded her on this group and, 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 you know, beckoned her in. And again, she felt, oh my God, you know, I'm surrounded by these amazing mums who are, you know, doing what they can for the health of their children. And so she felt like she wanted to join that group. And of course, joining that group means believing. So she thought, well, mm. you know, I need to look into this more. She, she allowed herself to be convinced. And then the next thing she found herself doing was being out there in the world, proselytizing for the belief, arguing with her cousins, arguing with her doctor. Mm. And then she said, I would come back and I would go on the foot and I just turn my computer on, open up Facebook and immediately you'd be telling all the rest of the group what you'd done that day. And they'd, they'd reward you with status. And that's how it went. And I thought that was just so interesting how she just, she perfectly described for me on the telephone how status game work without knowing anything about, you know, the idea that I was kind of writing about in the book. Um, and, and I, yeah, I think that's how, um, these communities that, that form around irrational beliefs 
very often happen. You write about these cases with a certain amount of empathy for everybody involved, right? I mean, because there's a sense that like, hey, we are these organisms that are wired to crave status, to earn status. We can't help it. Um, if we can't find it, we have to find another another community or, or 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 a way to earn status and feel valuable and feel good about ourselves. And and a lot of the a lot of the people who are, end up maybe on the wrong side of the truth, and in these cases doing some real harm, fully sincerely believe what they're saying and doing, but very much motivated by the affirmation they're receiving through these communities. Yeah, I I think that's the big piece of the jigsaw that um people very often miss um, when they're busy judging other people for being stupid or whatever, or crazy or whatever it might be. You know, my, my first book when I wrote when I was in my 20s was about ghosts and the people who believe in ghosts. And the book after that was about, you know, intelligent people who believe crazy things. And the the, the thing that struck me about meeting people like that was they sincerely believed um, what they were telling you. So, you know, probably the most dramatic example in the book, The Heretics, was that I spent some time with this guy, David Irving, who was um, who was a very well-respected um, historian of the Second World War. You know, he's, he's spoken of admiringly in Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, we, we know about Dresden, the firebombing of Dresden because of David Irving's scholarship. And then at some point, I think in the 1980s, uh, he decided that Hitler was a friend of the Jews and actually knew nothing about the Holocaust. And uh, it was all a conspiracy by people beneath Hitler and they they, they kept it out uh, of his uh, knowledge. Now, this idea that David Irving has had has ruined his life. You know, not only has he been sort of excommunicated from the the world of historians. He's been imprisoned. You know, he was actually locked up in his seventies in Austria. Um, and then when I met him, he was in permanent pain from a, a leg injury that he um, got in prison. He's ruined his life. Uh, and I think, you know, yes, he, he, he's anti-Semitic. He's an unpleasant man by every measure. Um, but, but, but I see his belief as a curse. We don't, we don't choose our beliefs like we choose, you know, melons in the supermarket. Our beliefs kind of happen to us. Uh, it's a subconscious thing. And, and, and I think it's like with these QAnon people, a lot of them, you know, we miss that they sincerely believe um, <laughs> the things that they believe, as crazy it might seem. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. because, you know, the brain has, um, as I said before, it values what, what do I have to believe in order to earn status in my community uh, much more than it values the truth. Right. And, 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 and this goes back to your prior book about the power of storytelling, that it, it is our nature to tell stories in which we are the hero, <laughs> right? And this, this, yeah. is a, this is sort of a, a core impulse that we have. The brain is more inclined to find ways to tell stories in which we are the hero than it is to discern the truth. Yeah, that's right. So, so David Irving, the, the, the historian, is, is an anti-Semite. And his and his anti-Semitic beliefs are are uh, you know overpowered his uh, uh, powers of scholarship and and so um, he 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 came upon a story um, which in which kind of Hitler was this kind of hero um, and you know something subconscious in him believed that decided to believe that and it and it ended up kind of unraveling his in, his entire life so. I mean, with all my books, I try and remove that 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 thing that we that, that we want to do of 
judging everybody through this moral lens of are they good or are they bad? I, I think things get much more interesting when you sort of take that away and just try and figure out what's going on with people. And, and I think that's true of the anti-vaxxers. I think it's true of, you know, Holocaust deniers. They tend to have a particular instinctive worldview. And what the brain does is it, is it comes upon a story that kind of flatters that worldview, that tells them that that worldview is true. And, so, and, and, and that will be the story that they sincerely believe. Most ideas bounce off us, but some actually change us. If you want more of those ideas in your life, there's no better place to find them than the Next Big Idea app. We partnered with hundreds of the world's leading nonfiction authors to create audio summaries of their books. We call these summaries Book Bites, and our app features a new one every single day. You can listen to a Book Bite in 12 minutes or read it in five. There's no other place on the planet where you can listen to book summaries created by the authors themselves. And that's not all we have waiting for you when you download the Next Big Idea app. We've also got professionally narrated summaries of classic books, video and audio masterclasses, ad-free versions of this podcast, and tons of other member benefits. So what are you waiting for? Pause this recording, open your app store, and search for the Next Big Idea. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. Will, in your journey writing this book, I'm sure you went through periods of feeling a little bit kind of dis discouraged by some of, by some of these human instincts and, yeah. and some of the ways they play out. But I think you also found uh, some real silver linings in your exploration of our attraction to status. What, what are those silver linings? One of the sort of most fundamental ones is that we have the you know the, the human animal has evolved an automatic system of reward for people who are valuable. So when we're virtuous, when we're selfless, when we do something good, people automatically go, "Oh, that's really good. You did a great thing," and they 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 give us a bit of status. I and mean, it's even internal. You know, when we give money to charity or do something that's yeah. good, even yeah. we feel, oh, you know, we get this little reward of, you know, we feel better about ourselves. We reward ourselves with um, status internally. So, so the, the fact that we've evolved this, you know, no other, no other animal ha has this system of rewards for kind of virtuous behavior. And, and it's also true, you know, with success, um, it was a bit of a weird realization that actually you, you think the virtue games are going to be the one that changes the world and makes right. the world a better place. But actually it's been, the, it's been the success games, you know, the, the world has become unimaginably better and fairer since the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution. And, you know, what happened, the, the kind of weird thing that kind of set off the first, the scientific revolution and then the industrial revolution was we started playing games for the, for the, the in which status was awarded for the discovery of new and useful knowledge. So for the first time in human history, actual truth was what we were what we were wanting. Not like a, a religious story or a story about monarchy or, or you know whatever crazy stuff that our ancestors you know pre seventeen whatever believed. Suddenly, actual useful truth um, was was a way that we could earn status, and that was the culture of the industrial revolution in in Britain. You know, in, in the UK, it was alive with these status gains. With the, you know people were tinkering in sheds, inventing this, inventing that. Um, it, 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 you know, the UK was the Silicon Valley of, of, of its era. 
Um, and then it spreads through Western Europe. It's, you know, Amer- in America, obviously, now has overtaken um, um, Western Europe in terms of its practice of, of success games. But it's these success games that have lifted billions of people out of poverty. It's these success games that have um, invented vaccines that have saved the lives and prevented the deaths um, of billions of people. It's these success games that have figured out how cholera spreads, you know, and mm-hmm. so on and so on and so on. Um, so this is not a kind of pain to capitalism. What I'm saying is it's, it's actually the practice of competence which, which has made the world a better and fairer place. Uh, with the big caveat that, that it has to be tempered by virtue. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if you're going to look at it through a political lens, capitalists and the kind of, uh, you know, uh, the virtue people have to have a voice because I, th- I think the people who are highly motivated to achieve major stages in success games are often completely sociopathic. You know, they just want to win. And, and if this is, and if it's going to be like the Elon Musk, a Bezos game of who gets to go to the moon first or whatever, or who gets to go to Mars first, uh, they don't, you know, whatever it yeah. is, I just want yeah. to win. Uh, and those, yeah. those people need the influence of, uh, mm-hmm. of the virtue people in order to ensure that the success games which they're creating are, you know, the rewards are distributed fairly. In the book, I call them kind of success virtue games. I mean, th- those yeah. are the ones where, where we re- where we really win. Mm. Yeah, and and we can see the tribe circling the prized hunter and singing a song of derision when Elon Musk or yes. Bezos <laughs> or Mark Zuckerberg is acting oh. like a selfish prick. You know, the, the internet is very effective at at. <laughs> At singing, at singing it's songs of derision, network. right? It's yeah. the gossip network, and it and it does trim the sales and reduce status uh, in order to try to encourage more virtuous and more communal behavior. In those cases, this brings to mind a quote from John Lennon of the Beatles, who, who I believe said, "The Beatles stopped being a band when we stopped going into record stores and trying to improve on our favorite singles." Oh wow! So they were kind of <sighs> no longer playing the status game. Right, because they they, they, they they no longer had had the hunger. That's amazing. I I'd never heard that quote. I think it's absolutely fascinating, and 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 and, I, and it just feels really true to me that 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 once a, you know, it's, it, 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 I've often puzzled because I'm a, I'm a big music person, and, I, and it's often puzzled me like why why musicians so great in their twenties compared yeah, to their forties. Yeah. Like Mick Jagger, you know, the Rolling Stones would kill to write another satisfaction, but why can't they? You know, wh- wh- why could REM never write Lo- Losing My Religion again? And and m- maybe it's that, m- m- maybe it's that they've, you know, w- w- when it comes to that enormous global success that they, they don't feel that they have to compete anymore. So they, so, so the, the drive lessons. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, it, it's difficult to achieve any higher status than the Beatles achieved at their peak, right? And I'm yeah. sure they saw that. Like, there are no more rungs to climb, right? There's, there's nowhere to go. Yes. Um, and, un- yeah. and, un- and unfortunately, so the, motivation that, the motivation goes with it. And but and unfortunately, as you point out, and this might this might also, we might also put this in the silver lining category, that to the extent that we common people sit around <laughs> and pine for what must be the radiant sense of perpetual high status that members of the Beatles or the Elon Musks of the world experience. Mm. Um, unfortunately, as you point out, or perhaps fortunately, we quickly acclimatize to whatever level of status we experience, right? 
Yeah, that's right. And I found this actually, it's probably reflects badly on me but i found this to be quite a quite a nice thing to realize is that because <laughs> yeah. you do you spend i mean it was interesting you were just talking about elon musk and mark zuckerberg and jeff bezos you know and yeah. we're used to thinking of them as oh they're so rich they're so powerful you know this kind of envy tinge stuff but but they are also amongst the most ridiculed humans on earth in in the western world true yeah so so we acclimatize to the status that we have so we quickly get used to it the brain is very good at saying well actually yes i do i do deserve this status that's kind of coming my way and then we and then we want more and we want more and we want more of it so and what that means is that, the, that those people at the very top you know like i i'm, I'm a midlist author i'm drowning in authors who are more successful than me um but but well but, now you're, but, you're very so, accomplished well you're, you're i'm not going to let you off that easily you're a, you're a highly accomplished and respected author but i'm sure you can find uh, others who've, who've sold more books for, for sure just turning into therapy thank you rufus uh, but, but but yeah but but, it, but it's also true that even those writers who i look up to and think oh if only I, if only i could be that successful um, you know, part of my brain thinks they must be so happy. They've got everything that I've ever yeah, wanted. Yeah. But of course, it's not true because they're not competing with me. They're competing with other writers who are also super successful. So they're no more happy, I don't think, in terms of status than, well, maybe they're a bit more happy, but not much more happy than I am because they're competing on a much higher level. So the, you know, the, 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 and, and that's also true of the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezoses of the world. The, 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 they, they haven't achieved happiness by, um, by, by, by climbing the scales of status and because they're now competing on an insane level. And it's actually much harder for them to maintain their levels of status than it is for most people. I was surprised to learn that Ian McEwen, who's one of my favorite novelists, a, a, a fellow Brit, and Martin Amos, I think mm. it's also true of, don't read reviews of their books. You'd think like if you're a top, one of the most revered novelists in the world, and most of the of Ian McEwen's reviews are, are extremely positive, you know, mm. that you could stomach a few negative reviews, right? <laughs> you've landed yeah. at this place, you've got status to spare, but we're all kind of fragile in these ways all of us yeah i mean in the book i wrote about paul mccartney and that his obsession with the fact that on all the rec all the labels on his records it says lennon mccartney that's the songwriting credit oh right that, yes you know Amazing. why why does lennon come first he you know he, he's had multiple attempts at trying to persuade the beatles and the reigning beatles and yoko ono to allow him to be mccartney lennon on some songs but it's he's never got anywhere with it but but that was amazing to me because as you said you know you can't imagine a, a bunch of people who've had more status in our in in the 20th century than the beatles and yet paul yeah, mccartney yeah. is still stressing about this silly thing that nobody nobody but him thinks about so i wonder now what we can learn as individuals from all, all that we've discussed today I was very moved by some comments you had toward the end of the book about, about the power of warmth, sincerity, and competence. How do you think about how we can best apply this to our lives? Um, I think there's a small handful of, of releases. I, I think one of the big things in the book was beware the virtue game. And I think that's especially important mm. in, 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 in Western yeah. cultures at the moment. I, I think, there, especially since the end of the financial crisis we've seen a resurgence in the virtue game and 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 people behaving on all sides behaving quite appallingly 
um, because they're so possessed with their idea of their local idea of what virtue is. So I think beware the virtue mm-hmm. game is, is, mm-hmm. is a big one. Warm sincerity and competence was this, you know, the, 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 there's a really interesting body of work by psychologists looking into what they call impression management, which sounds a bit Machiavellian. It's, um, you know, like how can we manage the impression that we make on other people? But I was interested in that work because it, because it tallied quite well with what I was, you know, the theory that I'd been putting forward in the status game, which is about these three games of dominance, virtue, and success. You know, some researchers talk about these three different components of presentation and the warmth, so sincerity and competence. So when we when we when we appear warm, sincere, and competent, people are just going to like us, and 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 that maps onto those three games. So so I think when you present with warmth, you're signalling to people, I'm not going to be dominant. I'm not going to push you around. Um, mm, when we signal yeah. sincerity we say, I'm, we're going to play a good virtue game with you. So I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to be honest with you. You know, if I'm unhappy, I'm going to tell you. Um, I'm not going to, you know, play a bad virtue game. And, you know, competence. You know, when we show competence, we tend to signal that we're going to be valuable to the group, the group that we're, that we're in. And people want that because it, because then, then their group's going to benefit. So it felt to me like this kind of magic triumvirate, really, warmth, sincerity, and competence. And it, and it really is hard to imagine meeting somebody who was warm, sincere, and competent and not thinking they're amazing. You know, I think I'd really like that person. So it, it just felt like a, just an in- interesting target for us to kind of aim ourselves towards, probably an impossible target to aim ourselves towards, you know, a lot of the time, but but, but an interesting target. And, and the, the, the final sort of big takeaway for me was just this idea, you know, status is more important to, my, to people than money. Most people, you know, we, we want to feel valued mm, and respected. Yeah. And the amazing thing about it is it's free and we've got unlimited mm, stores of it yeah. to give away to people. And and actually I, I feel like because we're chippy about status and because status is relative, we can be often be quite miserly in the status that we give other people. And ju- just, the, just the revelation to me that we have mm. this resource that's, that people love and we can just give it to anyone that we want. I mean, with the caveat, of course, that you've got to be sincere about it. You, you can't be telling everybody they're amazing and you love them. Unless you're in LA, <laughs> and, and 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 have you know and have people b- believe it, you've, you've got to be sincere with it. But 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 that that's changed the way that I um you know behave in the world. You know I, I'm much more kind of generous with mm. telling people that I value them than I used to be. And guess what? People love it. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Wow. So you yeah. So, so you feel this in, in, in just interpersonal interactions with people, right? And and, yeah. and it's and also it can help us be aware of these things that actually this is people talk about the power of listening, right? But a lot of this is about that eye contact, that communication of I I, I value what you have to say, and I also think that this leads into some of the political polarity that we've been experiencing. Uh, that It's always struck me that, that at least in, in the US, that part of the challenge has been a collapse of dignity of a community of people whose jobs are becoming less important in the changing world. And you can't just throw money at that. If people are experiencing a collapse of dignity and value and status, um, yeah. writing checks does not solve that problem. Um, And so that does feel like a a, a pretty important core insight. And also I think we see the dangers of the virtue game on both sides of the political aisle, right? Um, In the world today. I was fascinated by your comment that actually what we see is disagreements between the new right and the new left in America 
about how the status game is rigged. Uh, mm. I, I, I think you said that the new right sees the world as unfairly dominated by educated people. Yep. And the new left sees the world as unfairly dominated by straight white men. Yeah. So they, they, both, they, they both have these different experiences of, of how the status game is unfairly rigged. Uh, and and that's why they clash. So fundamentally, that you know what I've called in the book, the new right, is this kind of very kind of loose um, collection of uh, of kind of populist right wing people in the US and the UK. You know, mm -hmm. they're basically saying, look, you know, you 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 highly it's in a highly educated elite that has taken over the media, the government, and so on, and and we're sick of it. And we're not you you know we're not going to have it. You're imposing your ideas on us, and we don't want them. And the new left. Are saying that the game is rigged unfairly by straight white men, and we're sick of it, and and all the ideas that you're imposing on us. Right. So, so that they, you know, we were talking before about how you know you, we experience life as a story, and the story that we experience is the one that flatters our own beliefs and our sense of kind of status and and in a kind of heroism. And 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 I think both of those sides sincerely believe the world like that, even though it's the reality is far more complicated than either of those kind of simplistic stories would have you believe. That's right. And the brain is a, is a storytelling machine in which we are the heroes. And if we take a step back and appreciate that and go a little lighter on our, on our virtue games on, on the internet and elsewhere and in our lives <laughs> and try yes. to treat everyone with a higher degree of dignity and, 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 find ways to make to to help everybody feel a sense of status and self-worth yeah. and an interesting part of that story might be that as that with the rise of national media if you think that we all lived in these towns or small cities or what have you where we had a sense of our role in a community and we compared ourselves when we when we played the status game we compared ourselves yeah. to the other people in our small town but all of a sudden with uh television being pumped into your home uh and flashy people in los angeles on your screen the status game has been recontextualized on a national or global scale and one has been demoted right yeah uh, completely uh, yeah you know, I, and, and i think that's that's um you know, one of the reasons why people in modern Western developed countries are often so unhappy and stressed and anxious because our status games are much too big now. We evolved to play status games in, in the context of small groups. So in the groups in which we evolved, um, you know, say you play in success games, you know, well, those, those would tend to be split by gender. So men would compete with men and women compete with women. Then within that separation, there'd be um, age. So, you know, young kids wouldn't be, be competing with old men and so on. And then there's different competencies. So who's the best hunter? Who's the best tuba finder? Who's the best storyteller and so on? So these are very small status games. And so relatively, very easy to feel like, relatively speaking, you're doing pretty well. Um, but these days, um, in this sort of globalized context, um, we, we, we're playing status games with thousands and hundreds of thousands of people if you go if you work for apple or walmart or tesco's you know you're, you're you're playing this enormously kind of extended status game so it's so it's another reason why the status that's on offer is massively diluted and why and, and um so you know the, the 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 subconscious brain the brain which evolved to play status game in small communities 
is feeling like we're we're failing. I mean, it, it's part of the modern condition, isn't it? That, that that we can feel like we're failing, even when we're paying our mortgage, putting food on the table, our survival capacities are perfectly fine and not under threat. But we can still feel, and and often do feel like we're failing. And I, and I think that's because our status games have become, you know, unnaturally large. And when they're unnaturally large, they're they're hard to feel like we're doing well inside. And I also love this kind of advice that we should diversify our sources of status, right? That we should, <laughs> that I think, I think you're, in addition to writing books, uh, you're now riding bicycles, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it behooves as much as we have diversified stock portfolios, it behooves us to have diversified ego investments in multiple status games, not just one. That's right. I mean, and, and the, the scientific literature, um, finds that people with, they could say, say complex multiple self-identities tend to be happier and healthier and have more stable emotional lives. And I, and I think that's because they've got multiple sources of um, status. I mean, it's indicated, I, you know, I, I, about a year ago, I got a bike and it was amazing. As soon as I, um, as soon as I got the app that showed you how far you'd gone, how, you know, what your heart rate had done. And as soon as it put a number to your bike rides, I suddenly became much more motivated to cycle because you start competing against yourself, you know? So, 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 um, yeah, I, it, and it's been really good for me. Just that simple thing of of starting to you know get out and ride a bike because it's something else I can think about, something else I can get excited about, another source of meaning, um, another source of status. Well, I, I'm I'm doing the same thing with, with with the bike riding, although I'm not sure how I elevate my status uh, comparing it to myself. Uh, <laughs> but the um, but I, I I do something that's uh, worked out well for me, Will, which is I, I play squash with only one other person. And I tend to win slightly more often than he does. So I live in a universe in which there are two squash players and I'm the world champion. Uh, <laughs> I love it. And it, it really great is great. Game. Nice one, Rufus. It, That's great. <laughs> yes. Yes. I've fixed, I've fixed the status game on the squash board. Um, well, well, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Such a fascinating conversation. And we, we, uh, we can't wait uh, for your next book. And any clue as to what that might be? Uh, not right now. I'm kind of fishing around at the moment, but um, I, I will let you know, Rufus. And thanks for having me on. Uh, it's been a really um, deep and interesting talk. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. So, Caleb, what did you think? I loved it. I, I loved it. I think the highest compliment I can give that conversation is that it actually helped me get to know myself a little bit better. Um, Interesting. Yeah, let me. G I'll give you an example, right? So I live in LA, as you know, and this is a city that is just completely awash with status symbols. And one of the biggest is what kind of car you drive. And I drive a 2015 Honda Fit, which is basically <laughs> like if you picture the fanciest car you can, uh. this is the opposite. So I am definitely losing the car status game. And to be perfectly honest, there are times where I'm kind of embarrassed about that. Like I will go to meet someone and I'll park around the block because I don't want them to see how lame <laughs> my car is. I'm not kidding. Uh, uh, and then, funny. of course, immediately I feel bad, right? I'm like, oh, God, Caleb, you're so shallow. You're so materialistic. No one actually cares about you that much. They're not judging you. Then there are also times where I will brag about having such a lame car because it seems kind of cool and contrarian, you know, sure, right? It's like, sure, yeah, it's like yeah. oh, I'm I'm above being part of that car status game. I don't care about the vehicular hierarchy, you know? And then the voice in my head is like, that's, you're lying, Caleb. Like, you would love to be showing up to this in the brand new Tesla. 
So it's just this kind of lose-lose situation. But after hearing you and Will talk, it's allowed me to sort of zoom out and say, look, this is bigger than you. You're caught in a status game. There are tremendous cultural and evolutionary, you know, biological forces pushing on you here, pressing on you. And, you know, I, I'm not, I haven't yet quit the car status game. I haven't opted out and maybe I never will be able to. But I definitely now have the sort of tools or the awareness to be a little bit more compassionate to myself and to realize like, okay, this isn't just about being shallow. There's actually a lot more at work under the hood here to make a cheesy pun. So anyway, so that's my story. What, what about you? What, what are your takeaways, Rufus? Well, my first takeaway is that I'm feeling a lot of compassion towards you, Caleb, uh, with your Honda Fit <laughs> at losing the uh, the car status game. That really sounds, but it sounds character building. Uh, it actually segues nicely to, to one of my big takeaways, which is I was fascinated by this point Will makes that no one wins the status mm -hmm. game. But the closest you can get to winning, the best outcome you can generate is to have gradually climbing status mm. throughout your life. So, so basically starting with the Honda Fit was a great choice, yeah. Caleb. Uh, nowhere to go but up. Yeah. I mean, I think that suggests that Joe Biden maybe has actually won the status game, right? Like talk about <laughs> gradually climbing status. Yes, totally. He's nailed it. He's, he's, he's getting to the apex at the very, in the very last moments. Well, well done, Joe. How do you feel, Rufus, that you're doing on the kind of Biden curve? You know, I'm, I'm, I feel pretty good about not having achieved too much status too early. I really, I'm feeling good mm. about my incremental status uh, growth plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was good you weren't publishing those books like your friends were in your 20s, exactly. right? Exactly. I know. Pu publishing first book in my, in my mid to late 50s, I think is exactly the right plan. You know, one more thing maybe before we go, I wonder if there are any book bites that you've listened to recently that you think listeners who enjoyed this episode might enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. So, so a quick refresher, book bites are what we call the book summaries that you can find only on the Next Big Idea app. These summaries are produced by the authors themselves. They take 12 minutes to listen to or four minutes to read. One that feels related to this episode is the book bite Arthur C. Brooks made for From Strength to Strength. It's about finding ways to say, I'm not going to play that status game anymore. Really a wonderful book bite. Yeah. Another one I love is Anna Lemke's book bite for Dopamine Nation, where she kind of, she kind of suggests that the reason the status games we play on social media are so dangerous is that when we get a lot of Instagram likes or retweets, it doesn't just elevate our status. It gives us a massive dopamine hit that can easily become addictive and partly because the effect is so temporary and it's it, it's 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 fundamentally unsatisfying. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good one that there, there are a lot of, a lot of overlaps there. You know, another one that I would throw out is the book bite that Oliver Berkman made for 4,000 weeks. Yeah. And that's, that's this book where the idea is that he says, you know, look, the average human lifespan is only about 4,000 weeks long. And that is just simply not long enough for you to compete in and win every status game. So you've got to figure out what truly matters to you and pare back and let the rest fall away and realize you can't achieve it all. You can't win it all. I think that's a really, uh, a really key message here. Such a great book bite, 4,000 weeks, love it. As you mentioned before, if you want to listen to these book bites, there's hundreds of them now. All you have to do is go to your app store, download the next big idea. There's no better way to get smart fast, as we like to say. So download the next big idea app today. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. That's me. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat, sound designed by Mike Toda. We feel like we won the status game by partnering with the LinkedIn Podcast Network. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week. 